What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Welcome back to another week of The Hunting Show. I'm your host, Stephen Spargo. And I had a, a, quite a lot of feedback from our interview two weeks ago with Marama Fox from the New Zealand Maori Party about hunters, access and the treaty. Probably 80% of the feedback I had was positive and most of the negative feedback that I got from you guys, particularly via Facebook, not so much by email, was actually people that hadn't listened to the interview. I really do encourage you to go back a couple of weeks, have a listen to that, and form an opinion based on what her and I talk about rather than the title of the show. I think you'll find it a little bit interesting, and the whole thing was certainly done in good spirits. On the show, I probably do 80% of my interviews by phone, so it's always a pleasure to be able to interview someone in person rather than getting on the end of a telephone. And this week's interview is with Murray Matuska, and he's certainly a local icon where I'm from in the central North Island. He's also a, a very keen hunter. He's got more stories than I know what to do with, and I hear a different one every time I catch up with him. And Murray, I've also now considered you probably in my group of friends as well, certainly a family friend, and on this very, very stunning February day. How are you, Murray? Yeah, I'm good, uh, Steve. How are you? can't complain hey i'm sitting here in your you even shouted me a beer when i arrived i can't complain at all murray i suppose where to start with this is how did it all begin for you you've been hunting your entire life i assume and do you remember that first go that, that first time yeah thanks Stephen. it's a pleasure to be on your show i uh i, I saw my first deer when i was uh, about 14 years of age at uh place called Tiara where I was growing up I was going to high school there and this guy had a hind in the paddock a red hind and she used to chase the hell out of everybody that used to you know it was opposite the hall and uh, all the young guys including me we'd get over the fence at night and uh, she'd chase us and I tell you what she was open for business too and uh, so then we left there and we went to a place my stepfather drew a farm at a place called Waikiri Valley which is south of Rotorua and uh, when I got there when I was I was 15 when I got there and there was only seven settlers in the valley and the rest of it was uh, all land survey stuff and from the back of our place to Taupo which um, if you've never been there it's it's a long long way it's uh, it was all fern scrub and fern and everything so I landed there and it backed onto the Pyro Range which is runs along between behind Reparoa and uh, south of Rotorua there and uh, I was faced with an awe-inspiring situation because everywhere I looked there was there was deer or deer sign and pigs and uh, so I 
my, I was only 15, but I got a 22 rifle, which uh, is sitting out on the Polaris there, you just saw it when you came in. And uh, it's had two butts, but it's, I've still got the action in the barrel, so it's been a wonderful little rifle. Single shot Lithgow it was. Oh, you, you, you remember those? Yeah, yeah, you do. That's yeah, old Yeah. Yeah, yeah. old Lithgow, single shot. So that's all my stepfather would let me have. So um, that, that lasted for about two years, Steve. And then he said to me one day, oh, look, he said, those, the deer have just chewed my swede paddock out up the back. He said, yeah, uh, we better get you a bigger rifle. So he got me a 303, and, uh, which I still say, and I know you'll probably disagree with me, they were one of the finest rifles ever made, the old Lee Enfield's 303. The action alone was it was stunning it really was because it had that spring-loaded bolt that came up and sprung back you know and uh, in those days you needed five rounds or ten rounds didn't you you, you needed ten rounds in those days and um, so anyway that's how I started off Steve um, I shot my first deer with a 22 and since then uh, I, you, know, you would never know how many you've shot but if you look around the shed you'll see a lot of antlers in here and uh, and um, they're the ones I've kind of shot and, and other ones that I'll, I'll explain to you about later. But uh, So that's how I started off the deer hunting. And I've been kind of hooked ever since. Because uh, in those days, in those days, it's, uh, it was the only way you, get, you could go hunting was with a, on a horse and, or walk. And uh, there was no such thing as helicopters, as you know, in the 50s. They were around, but not in the commercial so anyway, um, we we used to hunt on uh, on horses, and you know I had horses, and and uh, who I you could talk about horses for the rest of your life, but you could shoot off them, you know, and they never never flinched. It was an amazing time of our lives because you'd pack up on a on a Saturday morning. Oh, you you, you probably went we went and played rugby, and the old story, you know, went and played rugby, and and then you came home and jumped on your horse, and all Sunday. Probably Saturday night, if there wasn't a dance on somewhere, and you were chasing girls, you'd you'd uh, go hunting. And uh, every chance we got, we used to go hunting, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. A sheet of plastic and a hot water bottle full of water, because there was there wasn't much water up the firewalls, and a can of beans, and uh, that would suffice for the for the weekend. And um, some of that plastic is probably still up there, and I do apologise for that. <laughs> But anyway, and, and also the baked bean cans. But uh, we uh, we had a wonderful time with uh, in those years, in those in the fifties. You know, and, um, I, I I just can't. It's it's a whole book, Stephen, on the fifties. They were an amazing time of our life. Not only here, uh, not only in Waikiki, but uh, I never got to hunt the Kaimana was until the early seventies because I had too much to do up there. And uh, in, down the uh, down towards the Uruwera country, um, or through Manganui, Tifaiti, all through there, we hunted all through there, and we had a a bloody ball. We did, and uh, but but I guess that's in the in the past. But to appreciate the the future, you got to look at the past, and and it was that's that was how it was. It was fantastic. I suppose you went on from that. Did you ever get into the sort of the meat hunting as well? Is that how? And a lot. Of, and I don't know your background with regards to meat hunting, but I have to say, 
where I work and, and and through the show, I've talked to a lot of guys around during that meat hunting times. These guys that that's that's what they did for a full time job, and I think guys my age who have never experienced that sit there and listen, and they, we absorb these stories like sponges, um, because I don't think we're ever going to see anything quite like that again. But did did you go on to do that, and and how was that time in New Zealand history and for hunting in New Zealand? Yeah, the meat hunting thing. Well, it, it started a wee bit before that, Steve, because I, I, when I got married and. In the late 50s, to, to Barbara, who was still married after 57 years, she um, she always she never stopped me from going hunting. Um, we went. Um, the first thing I did was deer skins were worth a lot of money. Deer skins were worth a lot of money. I think from memory they were up to three pound, which three pound doesn't seem much now, nor to six dollars. But in those days, when the wages were only five pound a week. It was a lot of money, and um, so I started off with this skin thing, and we shot a lot of deer and just left them laying there, just for the skins. Some of those stag skins were, were pretty big, you know, and uh, but they were heavy also. But we uh, we pulled them out of the forest, and you know we did all that sort of stuff. So that's how I really started on the on the uh, pay for what you shoot thing. And uh, do you want me to talk about the meat hunting? So anyway, then when we, when we kind of got, uh, when we uh, finally, uh, we went through all the, uh, the working period of our lives and everywhere I've been, there's always been deer. I, um, we, we were shepherding on a place called Powaiti Station, which was north of here, which was a land and survey place. And I think it was about five and a half thousand acres. I was a shepherd there, a, low, a low, lonely shepherd. And uh, Barbara and I had our first, we spent our first years of our lives there. And uh, that's when the, the skin thing was going good. And so that kind of helped us along. And, uh, and we did that. And, uh, and, and after, afterwards, we went share milking to get a few bucks to buy something like we have here today. And uh, so from the cow shed, believe it or not, there was the pyro range was right up in the distance, but with a good pair of binoculars, which were only cheap, 750, uh, uh, 1150. Do they go as high as that? Yeah, they do. Well, it was the big ones. I bought the biggest ones I can find. Uh, that's been my problem in life. Everything I, I buy, I try and buy the biggest <laughs> I can get. Um, so anyway, um, I could see the deer from the cow shed up on the range of an evening. And I would be sitting in there looking up, and Barb used to grizzle because she, when we were milking these cows, she she was had to finish up if I saw some deer, and I'd I'd cut loose and drive around and climb the pyroids, which is three and a half thousand feet above sea level. It's a big row of hills if you look at it from the Waikiki side, and uh, we'd shoot me and a mate. We'd shoot two or three deer and uh, take the skins back down, and and that supplemented our income. So when we finally got to we did a lot of things, Stephen. I managed, went back and managed that farm where, where I was first shepherding. And then we bought this place in Taupo, this 187 hectare place here in Taupo. And it had deer on the back of it. We backed onto 37,000 hectares of forest. And so um, we came here on a shoestring, as, a as you probably did, and a lot of people do. Um, and we came here on a shoestring. And uh, so to supplement the income, I started this meat hunting thing. And with the sheep and cattle farming, um, 
you didn't uh, have to uh, you don't have to go in and milk the cows or anything so well, I had time I did have time and I poached a lot of deer out of forest products out the back here and uh, I think everybody else did too but in my day in the, in the 70s when I came here uh, it uh, the hunting in, in, in Taharakuri which has now been deforested and put into a dairy farm which tears me apart every time I drive through it um, the hunting in there was unbelievable I got to know the forest ranger very well and he was a he was a great guy and he loved his hunting also and he'd bring the, all the stags he shot in the raw into my killing house and store them there until we could get them into town to sell them but that's the, that's where we started the meat hunting thing um, we uh, we hunted we hunted forever we hunted down the desert road we hunted in the Kaimanovas we hunted and the Urawaras we hunted everywhere just for the meat side of it and uh, but it wasn't an easy job, Steve, because you got a big stag, uh, big stag, say, let's assume he was uh, 200 pound or 100 kilos, uh, hanging up with the guts out. It was a big carry, you know, and I hear stories about guys picking up the whole stag and walking. I, I could never do that. It was, that was, they are, they're a big animal, you know, 140 kilos, you know, and you, you not only had to take out the meat, that would have been easy, you had to take the heart, lungs and liver too, and you had to take the uh, um, the head in, in, in the later stages so they could test for tuberculosis, And uh, but to carry a stag out of the forest or, or, or up a hill was a huge effort, and don't let anybody tell you that it wasn't. It's uh, okay with the young hinds and spikers and that you can manage with that even the spiker is a big animal so uh, I could never ever carry the whole thing but I've heard stories about guys that did but but, but I could never do that and uh, so we used to cut them in half I had an arrangement with the uh, with the meatworks that uh, they would take the hind quarters and they were providing uh, a strip down the back was taken off um, so they could see that it wasn't the farm one or anything and uh, and the ears, of course, but uh, so that's that's how we did that. But uh, no, it's it sounds good. All that sort of money you were getting a dollar dollar a pound, which is which was big money. I've got a I've got a bag of uh, dockets in there that would, you wouldn't believe all the ones we've shot, pigs also. And um, but no, it was a hard hard game. It was a tough game, and uh, a lot of people walking around with crook backs have that um, to remind them of those meat hunting days. The meat, uh, so it's the meat hunting side of things, you talk about the hard carries and everything, but it did, from what I can gather, and I'm only going on things I've read and things I've heard, it was pretty hard on the numbers, you know, the near the end before it was completely outruled, and I want to talk to you about that as well. Um, the, the, they were getting pretty scarce from what I can gather, and particularly the helicopter hunting, did you get involved with that at all? Yeah, we kind of did all that sort of stuff, and um, the, uh, when the helicopters came along, it was it was a whole new ball game because uh, you know deer, as we both know, love the open spaces. They love to be out in the open, and um, uh, there hasn't been a huge number of big heads shot in the bush. The most of the big heads shot in New Zealand, as you know, you read those old books, are out on the tussock, aren't they? where there appears to be nothing to eat. But that's what they like because I've noticed on the deer farm here, 
Stephen, around the trees, there's clover up to your up to your knees, beautiful green clover. But the deer don't like it. They'll eat it if there's nothing else. But they, uh, but they do like the, the the pasture where the sun's been on it. And uh, so it's the same with deer. Um, we, uh, I've always found that the big heads are out in the open, not so much in the, in in the bush. And with regards to numbers that you see in the hills, did you notice them dropping dro- dropping all the way off? I mean, we're seeing. We were just talking in the in the car just before that we're really. St- I think we're seeing a real recovery finally. In some places, it's gone too far, and they need to look at managing that a little bit better. But was there an issue with numbers that it almost sort of end in tears, or or was it just that they were getting smarter? I don't know. Uh, the area I used to hunt um, a lot was a bit north of here. Um, I, I, in my day, you could see through two or three hundred metres through the bush downhill. You could look down, and you could see deer way down the bottom. Now you can't. You can't do that. And there was just too many deer. There was just too many deer. And uh, so I guess the meat hunting, to a degree, uh, helped. Um, but we could only kind of go so far because you had to carry them. You couldn't get into the high country. So that was the, in the advent of the helicopters, that, that changed the rules because, as I said to you before, deer like to be out in the open. And um, um, the helicopters, well, they were just unbeatable. You, you cannot beat a helicopter. You, you, could, you can beat them out of the bush and that sort of stuff. I, never ever sh- I only ever shot one deer from a helicopter uh, because I was involved at the time in the deer farming. And uh, we were receiving wa- uh, live ones but uh, it it must have been when you look at it on on videos of helicopter gunships. Those guys were amazing, shooting with uh, FNs and um, AK-47s, whatever they used in those days, and uh, and they could shoot them on the run. You know, I could never do that. But uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun. But but they did lower the the numbers to a hell of a degree. But in the bush areas. Um, where, where they couldn't get, I guess uh, they had to uh, rely on ground hunting, and that's when the colours came along. Well, the colours were there from the 30s, weren't they? But uh, but but that did lower the population, and, and it worries me now to see the numbers building up to a degree where they're going to have to do something. Because with hunting, Stephen, as you know, a lot of guys leave the hinds. Um, they say, oh, no, I no, don't want to shoot a hind. Or You've got to. Because, as you know, we have no predators, and uh, we're the only predators that there is, and we have to go hunting. I, I get a when I get the school kids, <coughs> when I get the school kids here, I always say to them, <coughs> hunting is a good thing, because we have no predators. We're different to other countries, and that's why I'm not against. That's why I'm not against 1080 to a degree. That um, 1080 takes you 10 percent of your deer. And I and uh, we wouldn't probably be farming deer here if it wasn't for 1080. But I don't think it's done the deer. Well, we know it hasn't done the deer any any harm regarding population. Um, and you don't seem to get the big stags. It'll get all the young silly ones. And uh, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I you know I hate to see any poison. I hate to see spraying Roundup. I hate to see diesel trucks start up because when they start up, they blow out uh, diesel fumes, which someone 
said is the highest form of purposely uh, uh, cause of cancer um, of anything, diesel fumes. But we all, we're all driving them, aren't we? So um, that's my argument is that uh, with the 1080, no, I, I, I hate all poisons and I'd love to see it stop. But how else can you control these bloody possums and rats and ferrets? How can you do that? Anyway, that's my opinion of that. Of that. And the 1080 issue comes up on the show all the time, and it's it's a one of contention. Uh, you can promise you on that. I did want to talk to you about when the meat hunting was finally stopped, and what the story was there. You know, when they finally said that you couldn't take wild meat, and or they made it so hard that people didn't do it anymore. What actually happened there? What was the opinion or the feeling of people when that went on? I think tuberculosis was probably the the main reason. Um, they were scared of, of tuberculosis hitting the world market. And um, that's why they, they did. They never actually stopped meat hunting per se, but uh, it, it became a regulation. You couldn't sell the stuff unless it was pre-kill inspection, anti-mortem inspection, which we have to do with the farm deer. So when the farm deer came along and the, and the numbers came on the market, while the deer were still in the forest, they weren't in there to the de- degree that they were prior meat hunting. But then along came the um, live capture <coughs> of the deer for all, all the farms, you see. So that probably took a toll on the meat hunting side of it. Guys like you and I, like instead of you going out this weekend and sh- shooting a stag and getting 300 bucks for it, you, you got nothing because they weren't taking it. And um, so there was probably good and bad things there because they gave the deer in the bush a chance to recover. But uh, and then but they did start it up again, didn't they, later on? But the deer, the deer farming thing absorbed every spare animal that was available in the bush. It, it took everything. And uh, God knows that it, um, they brought a lot of them here in the early days seeker deer too but um, so I guess that I guess you'd have to say that the reason for that was the deer farming appetite for wild caught deer now you've done some or you've taken some interesting people hunting as well haven't you over the years we'll sort of jump forward a little bit and uh, we what's your experience I've I personally choose not to guide Um, I think that it would I just don't think I, I would. I'm not into it. My hunting is my time, and I don't want to do it for a job. I do this is enough, you know. Tell me some of the best experiences you've had, maybe doing that, taking people hunting, whether that's professionally or just taking a, a mate with you or socially. Yeah, I've always believed, Steve, that uh, there's no fun going hunting on your own. Uh, a lot of guys are loners, and they. I've got a grandson that likes to hunt on his own, or just him and my other grandson who works here but um, it's not my style because all the fun I've had in the bush has been with other guys you know um, God I remember I remember one night we, 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 we rode into this place and on the horses and we got in there and it was a lovely fine afternoon and uh, we, 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 we set up our camp and then um, actually shot a deer the night before and there's the antlers there and uh, and uh, just a just a little ten pointer. But anyway, uh, he was roaring his guts off, and, 
Um, he came running up the hill and I shot him at about two metres off, off the back of the horse, the fellow there. Yeah. I often wonder why I shot it because he should have been left to breed, shouldn't he? Anyway, uh, so we got camped and, uh, and we looked up and, hello, what are, what are those clouds up there? And next thing it started to rain, I've never seen rain like it. Uh, I had horse covers for the horses and we soon took that off them and put it over ourselves because we were getting really wet. But that was the that was the that was a wonderful night because we laughed all the way through it, and uh, tried to sleep and you couldn't you know you can't sleep when it was torrential rain like that, and so those are the sort of experiences that you get with other guys and and oh look at that you know look at that deer over there Jesus isn't he a beauty you know if you come home and tell someone you tell someone I tell you oh Christ I was out last night and I saw this magnificent stag you'd think oh bullshit he's probably only <laughs> probably. <laughs> Probably only eight, eight pointer or something, but if you've got a mate there, he, he he can verify that, you know, and they can say, well, you know, oh yeah, I remember that. That was a great night, you know what I mean? That's that to me was what hunting was all about. It was a lot of fun, you know, looking for, looking at sign and stuff like that. But mm. but fam famous guys. Well, we took Bert Reynolds out one night. You remember the the movie star? We took him out one night and uh, we uh, we got him a deer and. And he was a great guy. We had a lot of fun with Bert. I, um, he always said he was coming back, but of course they never do, you know. Um, he was a great guy. Uh, but no, just you can go on forever about you know fellows you've been out with. But uh, um, w oh, we've had some wonderful times up Mount Tarawera. We saw nine stags up there one night, and uh, we, uh, we we were. We were camped up there and uh, we just got out of bed in the morning. There was nine stags about 300 metres away from and there's the head off it up there on the third from the left, see? Just a mongrel head, but it was, it's, it's, the, it's the fun of being there, isn't it, Steve? And it's no fun on your own, mate, I can tell you that. It's interesting. I went hunting, I think I was just telling you off here, I went hunting the other night by myself and I don't do it very often. I, I went out, I needed just to chill out and clear my head and all that kind of stuff but you're right I always harp on and, and listeners right now be rolling their eyes because I always talk about hunting as who you're with and where you are and and where you are is one of the most important things yeah and uh, have you ever I've always found it hard recapturing that you know you take photos we've all got these phones with us now and flash cameras and I always look back on the photos and go that's not as good as it was you know that looks an amazing photo that's a lovely picture but to be there and feel the, I don't know if you call it the energy and the and the place and the the whole thing, is has hard to recapture. Have you ever been successful in that? Because you're, I know you're an artist and I know that you're you're all about that. But have you ever been able to recapture what you see in the hills in a in a way that has has satisfied you? I suppose because I I personally haven't. And I'm the same. I haven't either. And I wish I'd had a camera. Um, can I just bore you with a little one little short story? I had a, uh, I've got a brother-in-law, him and I used to hunt together a lot. He was a, he was a great guy. He's, he since died. He shouldn't have done. He was too early. But anyway, he, um, he was a great guy and he was shepherding at Rira Fakaitu. Do you know where that is? Rira Fakaitu. And um, it was in the days of the big numbers of deer around. So he said to me, oh, he said, I know this great place. He said, well, we'll get up early and we'll get down there and we'll, we'll look over the hill and I'll bet there'll be some deer there. So we, so we did that. And we got up over the hill, and oh, we lost count at about 50. There was, they were just on the paddock. They were everywhere. 
So anyway, there, um, there's always a hind watching, isn't there? Funny thing that there's, I see that here on the deer farm. There's always one hind that'll be watching, you know, what's going on. And but anyway, uh, we were lucky because it was a misty morning and we poked up over the ridge there and there's all these deer. So we decided, skins are worth big money. We decided to uh, start from the left. I said, you, you start from the left and I'll start from the right. So I had 10 rounds in the old 3-0 and he had the same. And we had a couple of clips. They, had, they used to hold five, remember? And you'd push them in when you ran out of ammo. So we start, I started from the left and he started from the right. And I don't remember getting any. And I know he, oh, he reckoned he wounded one. Because <laughs> after the first shot, which I missed, uh, I think I was the first shot, they all bolted. And we never got a bloody deer. And there was over 50 there. That had, happened to me twice. And if I could bore you with one more. The, um, when I was working for Land and Survey, I was 15. And um, uh, I, I actually had the 3-0 by this time. I said before I was 16, but I was a bit naughty because you weren't allowed a rifle before you were 16. But my stepfather bought me this 303 X-Army. It's a nice rifle. I've still got it. And uh, uh, the manager said to me, you better go down to the swamp there. The deer have eaten all the Swedes. He said, they're eating too, too many deer down there. Go down and have a bomb up. So I got two, two, two other guys that were, uh, were builders and we decided to go next morning and it was a very misty morning and as we went up on this little knob of course we looked down and I don't I, I, I don't know how many deer there was there would have been oh there must have been 70 80 100 deer there on this flat beside the swamp and uh, on the Swedes and we opened up and virtually the same thing happened I, I think I think one guy got one but I, I know I didn't because I've never been a great shot Steve I'm, I'm a lucky hunter I'm not a good shot. I've missed deer closer than that jute box there, and and, um, and and anybody that says they haven't missed deer has never been hunting. Anyway, we opened up on these deer, and they all took off back through the swamp. And uh, I, I think I think he, from memory, I think he got one. But uh, just shows you, you can have a lot of deer, but unless unless you're a crack shot uh, with the old open sights on a misty morning, it's not easy. So, but I, I've I've taken a lot of them since then, but. But that was two occasions when there's big numbers, you often think, oh, this is going to be easy, and you get nothing. But when you get one at a 300 metres, sometimes you can get it down. But uh, it's it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'd like to to ask you some questions or, or bring you onto a topic around advice. There's a lot of hunters that listen to the show that have done a small amount of hunting. There's a lot of them, a lot. And there's guys like me that have done, for my age, done probably quite a lot, but not certainly the experience that, that you've had and one thing that is is interesting amongst hunters is that passing of knowledge is never done well you know I don't know why it's it's just the it's it's almost like a, a secret society that you've you've got to you've got to get into and part of the show is passing on knowledge and, and allowing people to get that for someone like me who's done a good amount of hunting and I've had some success and I've, I've definitely had some failures and I've missed a couple and had a couple of shots that are a bit legendary and they're probably 50% luck to be fair but you know I can skite about them now what's your advice to someone like me particularly after seeker because that's my mission at the moment I've shot plenty of reds and I'm on to the seeker if there was three or four tips you could give me on how to have a more successful seeker hunt and, and a deer hunt in general what would they be oh it's a tough one Steve it's a tough one because every situation 
has its own rules, you know. Like you, I've I've never shot a decent, a real big eight point. I've shot a few eight pointers, but nothing of any consequence. And all the ones I can remember shooting seeker, uh, uh, that's a tough one, man. That's a it's a hard question. Um, you probably best ask my grandsons now because they, uh, you know, they got they shoot a lot of deer on on modern modern times and but. You know, like the seeker deer, I don't know. The, the best seeker stags I've ever seen, I've come across a pad and I've just got my back into a tree and I've just whistled with a shepherd's whistle. And uh, to me, Stephen, I know you'll disagree, but to me, the advent of the automatic whistle and roaring machine is a huge step backwards for the simple reason you know with the GPS with telescopic sights with I know I'm old-fashioned and I shouldn't be talking like this because I've got a scope too but uh, and I've got a game camera but uh, all that sort of stuff man it's it's taken the fun out of it you know if you get a, the old shepherd's whistle that you can buy and you give the old stuff you know you just wait. Sooner or later, a seeker stag will come and he'll he'll do his rounds. Maybe he won't, but they usually have about four or five pads in an area of say it may be half a half a kilometre. You know all about it. And but if you see a fresh pad with a bit of and you can smell the urine, don't pick it up like we all do. See, smell it. Just get on your hands and knees and bend down and have a smell. If he's been there. Just get your back into a tree and wait it out. You may see nothing, but uh, if you if you take a good book, I don't mean a penthouse. I mean, <laughs> I mean a good a good a good book on hunting or something, and just sit quietly and wait it out because that stag will during the day or come back and inspect that pad. But apart from that, with the red deer, um, people say, oh. You know, when a red stag, when you're in on a red stag and he's roaring, what do you do? Do you keep roaring? Do you shut up? What do you do? And I've always, I've always waited till they're within oh, perhaps 50 metres, then I just shut up and break sticks. That's what I do. Just, just break sticks. And uh, or if you happen to have a bit of antler in your pocket, which you probably wouldn't have, just rub it up and down on a tree. Something like that, but if you you know roaring is their business, that's their business. They know what roars are. Sure, you can roar the odd one right up to you, you know, and they're crazy. But most stags are pretty cautious, and if you can just break sticks and just sit back, that's about the only advice I can give. But as I say, uh, every situation has its has its rules, and I don't know what the rules are. I always. I've been told this a number of times, the biggest stags and the best stags in any species of deer don't roar or croak or anything. In fact, because that's how they got on. That's how they got to be that big. So they're not roaring. And they're the cunning ones. They're the once-in-a-lifetime shot type type animals. Have you had any of those? Those once-in-a-lifetime, that, that big trophy, the one that uh, you hope sticks around forever. And you've got a lot of pretty serious trophies in here. But uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is there that one that you 
that stands up bigger than all the others or better or hardest. It doesn't have to be the most, uh, you know, the highest Douglas score, you know. Yeah, that's my favourite hunting story, that one. Uh, uh, have you seen the one inside that's mounted? Yes. I have, yeah. Well, um, I was, uh, I went out with this guy and uh, I'd been to this place many times in my youth and I thought, oh, how about we go up this place and hunt these deer? He said, yeah, yeah, okay. Would you mind if I bring my two sons? They were 11 and 12. I said, no, no, shit, no, no, bring them. So we went up there and we, we camped and there was no sign. There was no rules. It was the, I think it was the 11th of April. Nothing, no sign, no rules, no fresh marks. Nowadays, people would say, oh, Christ, there's been 1080 and there's nothing up here. And in those days, before the 1080 come, and uh, there was no sign or anything. So I said, uh, he said to me the next morning, we spent a very uncomfortable night on a slope because we ran out of daylight and started to rain. And we were on this slope. We spent a very uncomfortable night. The next morning, he said to me, oh, no, he said, there's nothing up here. He said, no sign, nothing, no, uh, I'm going to head back to the truck. So he took his youngest son with him and I said oh well I'm, I didn't come all this way just to go home I'm going to carry on up this ridge and so his other son said oh I want to go with Uncle Murray he said I want to go with Uncle Murray so we got up there and uh, as I said before there was no sign and I, and I gave a roar and one answered away down the gully and I thought oh anyway he, he roared again before I did and I thought uh, it sounds like a, a guy because it, it wasn't a, a very weak sort of a roar, you know. And I thought, oh, no, that's a guy. So I said, oh, no, I'm pretty sure that's a man down there. And this this kid said to me, no, no, he said, no, Uncle Murray. He said, I, I've heard them roaring in National Park. No, he said, oh, no, he said, I'm sure that's a stag. And I said, oh, so I give another roar. And he answered about three times. And I thought, oh, gee, perhaps it is, you see. So I said, well, we'll just sit here and we'll wait, and if it's a guy, we'll have a yarn to him, you see. So anyways, we just sat there. I didn't make any more roars. And next thing, I heard this crashing coming through the trees, and I thought, oh, men don't usually make that sort of noise, you know. And he kept uh, coming up, coming up, and next thing he walked out on this clearing we were on, and it was a magnificent red stag, and he was only the length of this building, probably about 25 metres, and, and I shot him, and this best head I've ever shot and uh, just shows you that I'd given up you know and I thought there's nothing there but, uh, no, that, that was that was uh, one of my favourite hunting stories I know it doesn't sound much Steve but at the time it was a wonderful wonderful experience mm. that really does go back to what we said it's about where you were and who you were with and the story behind it I suppose isn't it it's always about that and finally Murray we'll, we'll sign off on this you, you've had an awesome life hunting. You're still out there doing it. Uh, you know, I arrived today and there's trees coming down and you're a fit man. Do you think that the, the, the hunting side of it and being in the outdoors leads to that? You know, I look at around and you, I've never ever seen a guy in, in seriously ill health, you know, six hours or seven hours off the track. You might see them on the ute just by the track, I suppose. But has is it, is it been good for you? Is, is, is that part of it been something you, you've valued? Oh, God, you know, I say to my grandsons, it's... Uh... It's, it, well, I say to everybody, you know, hunting is the most amazing thing, and, and there's a lot of deer around now, as you know. And um, but no, hunting has just been a, 
it's been a joy to me and uh, I look around all these antlers in here and I think some of them are only knife handles as you can see but but uh, they're uh, it's what a, what a what an amazing life it's been chasing deer and I don't I don't know why it is but the red deer brings out the best of it in, in us doesn't it the red deer a red stag roaring in his natural environment is just something that you cannot reproduce and I know it's not everybody's thing and I know there's the lobby about hunting and everything but gosh you know you when you think about hunting what a wonderful experience it is Oh, Murray, well, thank you for the interview and thank you for taking some, the time out of your very busy day to, to talk to us and our audience. And, uh, and we're going to go have a look around the farm now and, and thank you for that as well. And thank you for being such an icon and sharing knowledge. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and your listeners. And um, I hope the show goes down okay. And it's, it's only my opinion and uh, I wish everybody has theirs. But no, no, thank you so much. Thanks for the yarn. Now remember, you can win that great uh, prize from NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine. That's a 12-month subscription with them. All you've got to do is be active with us. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and we are on Instagram. I've only just started that, so it's a little bit sad at the moment. But find us on Instagram, The Hunting Show NZ, and Facebook is obviously just search The Hunting Show. Be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. Podcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him, and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.